Turn in your Bibles to Daniel chapter 5. I'm going to take just a minute before we read uh, to remind you of a few things and give you a little bit of historical context. The great theme of the book of Daniel can be summed up in a single word, sovereignty. That is, the sovereignty of God. God's sovereignty over all of the kings and kingdoms of the earth. Uh, It's been true from the very beginning and will be true until all kingdoms are reduced to nothing under the reign of Jesus Christ in the world. And the book of Daniel is, uh, is the first half primarily in narrative, the second half in uh, a, a, an apocalyptic series of visions, nonetheless all focused on this one theme. And so in a sense, it's a book of comfort to us as the people of God. You know, we come to this book, and, and we have various lessons that we learn here. We have the example of Daniel and the example of his three friends. But the, the one thing we ought to take away from the book of Daniel, uh, week after week, having read it from beginning to end, is that God is sovereign over all things, and He works for His glory and His people. And those two things are not at odds. And so that's what we're going to see once again this evening no matter how this world threatens, no matter what it promises, it cannot fulfill, it cannot deliver on the threats and promises ultimately. So before I read, this is uh, in, in a book full of things that I love, this might be my favorite chapter, uh, which meant it was impossible to write a sermon for this evening. I've got 17 points for us this evening. Uh, and so I, I literally have three sermons uh, out of my study this week from, from Daniel chapter 5. It's one of the most famous nights in history. Herodotus writes of the very evening that we read about in Daniel 5. Xenophon writes about this very evening. And the Bible, Xenophon and Herodotus are all in agreement on what takes place on this day. In fact, Uh, One of the things I love about Daniel 5 is that uh, historians and and, uh, so-called biblical scholars have for years said that this is just a a myth, it's a made-up story, it's not actual history. And one of the things that they used to have a great deal of fun poking uh, at evangelicals for is because this character in the chapter tonight, Belshazzar, uh, was nowhere in the historical record. Uh, they, we know who was king of Babylon on the night that it fell. It was Nabonidus. Uh, Belshazzar must be a, a made-up character. And, uh, and in fact, history eventually did discover evidence, uh, actual proof, that Belshazzar was sharing the reign over Babylon with Nabonidus on the night that Babylon fell. Uh, and in fact, that also explains a, a very simple little detail in our reading tonight. He offers Daniel the third place of power in the kingdom, which would be an odd promise to make if he was the king and there was nobody else, right? But it's the third place because Nabonidus is also king. And so in this chapter intended to show that God is sovereign, that he knows all things, that his wisdom is greater than all the wisdom of the world, and that he is more powerful than kings and kingdoms, Uh, This chapter has served as an embarrassment to those archaeologists and, again, so-called biblical scholars who suggested that it wasn't a true story. And so uh, I'm excited to be in Daniel 5 this evening. There is some important historical context that we have that gives us insight into the text itself, and that is that by the time the feast is happening that we're going to read about from the very beginning, uh, from verse 1 this evening, the, the, the great 
empire of Babylon that we've read about in the previous chapters under Nebuchadnezzar, that empire is all but gone. In fact, all that's left of it is the city of Babylon and the great walls that are protecting those inside. Babylon is under siege uh, by the Persians under Cyrus, and the city is all that's left. And so uh, the, uh, the city is taken eventually this very evening. This is, by the way, according to our calendar system, the chapter we're reading tonight happens on October 12, 539. Right? We know the very day in history that this happened. Uh, Cyrus and his army divert the river that runs under the walls and through the city, and by so doing, they make a way to go down into the riverbed and under the walls, and they take the city without a fight. Uh, history records that the king was in the city and killed that very night, and we know Nabonidus was not in the city. And so what king was killed in the city, but the very king we're told in the chapter tonight is killed and the kingdom falls, it's destroyed. So all of this context is happening uh, in the background. There's a, a, an additional layer, really, of, of just foolishness in the fact that they are feasting in the midst of a, a siege. A siege, if you're not a fan of history, is when you surround your enemy's city and you just wait. And you don't let any food or water into the city and until they finally begin to starve to death and come out willingly. And in the context of that, the, uh, the king and his thousand lords are feasting. They're, they're going through food and wine and water in copious amounts. It's not a wise thing to do in the middle of a siege, is it? And it shows his foolishness. Okay, enough background and introduction. With all of these things in mind, I'm going to pray and let's read Daniel 5. Father, we thank you for your word this evening and the fact that it is proven over and over again, contrary to the doubters, contrary to the scoffers, to be perfect in wisdom, perfect in truth. And so as we come to your word this evening, we pray that you would show us this truth, that your spirit would be at work, building us up, strengthening us, Father, giving us that wisdom that is ours in Christ. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Hear the reading of God's word, Daniel 5. King Belshazzar made a great feast for a thousand of his lords and drank wine in front of the thousand. Belshazzar, when he tasted the wine, commanded that the vessels of gold and of silver that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken out of the temple in Jerusalem be brought, that the king and his lords, his wives, and his concubines might drink from them. Then he brought in the golden vessels that had been taken out of the temple, the house of God in Jerusalem, and the king and his lords, his wives, and his concubines drank from them. They drank wine and praised the gods of gold and silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. Immediately the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace opposite the lampstand. And the king saw the hand as it wrote. Then the king's color changed and his thoughts alarmed him. His limbs gave way and his knees knocked together. The king called loudly to bring in the enchanters, the Chaldeans, and the astrologers. The king declared to the wise men of Babylon, Whoever reads this writing and shows me its interpretation shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around his neck and shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. Then all the king's wise men came in, but they could not read the writing or make known to the king the interpretation. Then King Belshazzar was greatly alarmed and his color changed and his lords were perplexed. The queen, because of the words of the king and his lords, came into the banqueting hall and the queen declared, O king, live forever. Let not your thoughts alarm you or your color change. 
There is a man in your kingdom in whom is the Spirit of the holy gods. In the days of your father, light and understanding and wisdom like the wisdom of the gods were found in him. And King Nebuchadnezzar, your father, your father, the king, made him chief of the magicians, enchanters, Chaldeans, and astrologers, because an excellent spirit, knowledge, and understanding to interpret dreams, explain riddles, and solve problems were found in this Daniel, whom the king named Belteshazzar. Now let Daniel be called, and he will show the interpretation. Then Daniel was brought in before the king. The king answered and said to Daniel, You are that Daniel, one of the exiles of Judah, whom the king my father brought from Judah. I have heard of you that the spirit of the gods is in you, and that light and understanding and excellent wisdom are found in you. Now the wise men, the enchanters, have been brought in before me to read this writing and make known to me its interpretation. But they could not show the interpretation of the matter. But I have heard that you can give interpretations and solve problems. Now if you can read the writing and make known to me its interpretation, you shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around your neck and shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. Then Daniel answered and said before the king, Let your gifts be for yourself and give your rewards to another. Nevertheless, I will read the writing to the king and make known to him the interpretation. O king, the most high God gave Nebuchadnezzar, your father, kingship and greatness and glory and majesty. And because of the greatness that he gave him, all peoples, nations and languages trembled and feared before him. Whom he would, he killed. And whom he would, he kept alive. Whom he would, he raised up. And whom he would, he humbled. But when his heart was lifted up and his spirit was hardened so that he dealt proudly, he was brought down from his mighty throne, his kingly throne, and his glory was taken from him. He was driven from among the children of mankind, and his mind was made like that of a beast, and his dwelling was with the wild donkeys. He was fed grass like an ox, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven until he knew that the Most High God rules the kingdom of mankind and sets over it whom he will. And you, his son, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, Though you knew all this, but you have lifted up yourself against the Lord of heaven, and the vessels of his house have been brought in before you, and you and your lords, your wives, and your concubines have drunk wine from them, and you have praised the gods of silver and gold, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone, which do not see or hear or know, but the God in whose hand is your breath, and whose are all your ways, you have not honored." Then from his presence the hand was sent, and this writing was inscribed. And this is the writing that was inscribed. Mini, Mini, Tekel, and Parson. This is the interpretation of the matter. Mini, God has numbered the days of your kingdom and brought it to an end. Tekel, you have been weighed in the balances and found wanting. Paris, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and Persians. Then Belshazzar gave the command, and Daniel was clothed with purple. A chain of gold was put around his neck, and a proclamation was made about him that he should be the third ruler in the kingdom. That very night, Belshazzar, the Chaldean king, was killed. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Defeated the army of the Babylonians multiple times in the field, and now is outside of the city walls. Despite all of that, he's going to engage in a drunken festival, impiety, wickedness, and foolishness, all because he has a, a misplaced trust in his power, in his wealth, in his ability to withstand. Uh, Xenophon records 
that they had 20 years worth of stocks, food, and everything else that was needed in the city. And as the Babylonians, or uh, as the Persians, were around the city walls, surveying the city walls, trying to figure out how best to lay siege to the city, the Babylonians were up on the walls taunting them, laughing at them, making fun of them, because they were so confident in their security. We should not trust in worldly power and wealth. Even when confronted by the handwriting on the wall, the best Belshazzar could do in his fear was call upon his wise men. They were no help before an all-powerful God. To enlist the best help that he could, the most he could offer was a leading position in a dying kingdom. You know what they do to kings when you're conquered, right? Is anybody eager to be the third highest ranking leader in the city of Babylon on the night that the Syria, the, uh, uh, that Cyrus and the Persians come in? Uh, it's not much of a promise, but it's the best that he can hold out uh, in his current circumstances. Belshazzar was proud, impious, idolatrous, and immoral, despite knowing the story of Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar is the grandfather. The text calls him the father, but that was how they would speak of ancestors uh, in this time. He's the grandfather of Belshazzar, and Belshazzar knows the story. Uh, the queen that is spoken of here in verse 10 is, uh, is almost certainly Nebuchadnezzar's wife, the queen mother. She says that Belshazzar knows the story of Daniel. Daniel says that Belshazzar knows the story of Nebuchadnezzar's being humbled. Despite knowing all of these things, Belshazzar does not humble himself. He knew the God of the Jews. He knew the power of this God. He knew how this power had been demonstrated in Nebuchadnezzar, who, by the way, was a far greater man than Belshazzar was. It's interesting, the text seems to be going to great lengths in order to try and expose Belshazzar as the worthless king that he is. It says that Belshazzar, it doesn't say Belshazzar brought out the implements from the, the Jewish temple. It says that he brought out the implements from the Jewish temple that Nebuchadnezzar had taken. The point is, Belshazzar is not doing much but losing an empire. He's still living on the greatness of Nebuchadnezzar. And despite the fact that Nebuchadnezzar was humbled desperately by God, and Belshazzar is no Nebuchadnezzar, Belshazzar nonetheless in his pride refuses to humble himself before this God. It's a colorful example of how lost we are in the world without Christ, isn't it? It's easy to laugh at Belshazzar, and frankly, I think there's probably reason to believe that as the people of God, we're supposed to laugh at Belshazzar here in the text. But before we go to laughing at Belshazzar, I think it's important that we stop to consider the lesson that we see in Belshazzar here. Now, we, most of us, I would imagine, don't have actual, literal, physical idols in our home with little altars where we worship. But uh, John Calvin is famous for saying our hearts are an idol factory uh, we will make an idol out of any good gift that God gives. So we need to stop and consider, are we putting our hope and trust in something other than Christ? 
The warnings in the book of Hebrews suggest that even as Christians, we need to stop and engage in this spiritual exercise. What is it that you're counting on in life above all things? Who or what is it that you trust above all things, that your hope is in above all things? If it's not God, then it's misplaced. If it's not Jesus Christ, then it's idolatry. And we don't want to rush past this and say, yeah, yeah, I'm a Christian, so that's not an issue for me. We are constantly confronted, constantly confronted with the desire to give all of our time, all of our energy, all of our attention, all of our love to anything other than Jesus Christ. And so I want to encourage you this evening, what is it that might be in your life that thing that gets everything from you rather than Christ? Whatever it is, whether you're conscious of it or not, what you're doing is trusting in the implicit promise of that thing or that person. You're trusting that that person or thing can meet the deepest need that you have in life. And it will disappoint. The world, people and things, hold out promises to us. We heard it this morning, didn't we? The serpent held out the promise to Eve that if she would eat the fruit, then she would be wise, that she would know good and evil and be like God. It was an empty promise, wasn't it? It was a lie. The serpent didn't have that to give, and the fruit did not hold that out to them. But when she desired it, when she saw that it was good, that it was beautiful, she took it and she ate, and Adam did likewise. They believed the lie of the serpent. They put their hope and their trust in the world. Brothers and sisters, this is what we have to be so careful about. And this is why Calvin is so clear when he says that our hearts are an idol factory. We are so prone, so prone to give ourselves to anything other than Christ. We give ourselves to things other than Christ because those things don't make demands of us. Or at least if they do, they're demands that we're happy to fulfill right? Are we going to be okay, Chase? No, no tornadoes or anything? Okay. The promises of the world are empty promises, and we cannot put our trust or our hope in those promises, but rather we put our trust and our hope in Christ. Second this evening, our reward comes from God who gives himself to and for us. Notice that Daniel does not trust the king's rewards. The king says early on in the chapter, uh, verse, uh, verse 7, he makes this promise to anybody who can read and interpret. Then he repeats that promise when Daniel has come into the room, verse 16. But Daniel answered and said, verse 17, before the king, let your gifts be for yourself and give your rewards to another. Now, based on everything we know, it might be easy to see how Daniel might say that. Daniel has a pretty good sense. Daniel would have known, just like everybody else in this story knew, that, uh, that Cyrus and the Persians were outside the walls. Perhaps God has already come to Daniel and told him how to answer this riddle. Whatever it is, Daniel knows good and well what God has in store for Belshazzar and for the Babylonians. Nonetheless, 
it might have been tempting if you're Daniel to say, I'll take that gold. Not just because it's pretty and it's shiny, but what's about to go down when the Persians come through the city? It would be nice to have some money, wouldn't it? Some money to bribe the Persians, perhaps. Some money to purchase comforts for yourself or to purchase your life, even. There is a temptation here. It's not all black and white, yes or no. There's a temptation, even for Daniel, whether he's experienced that temptation or not. We can see this, and we can imagine how Daniel might have been okay to take that gold chain, and even the purple robe, and he'll just ignore the the promise of being a third in the kingdom. Daniel, though he accepts these things in 29, is very clear in 17 that he doesn't want them, he doesn't need them, the king can keep them. How can Daniel say this in the face of what's about to happen? It's because Daniel knows that he is not uh, going to be delivered from these things by gold or by a position of power and privilege. He's going to be delivered from them by the God that he serves. What does Daniel possess that enables him to scorn the king's reward? Daniel possesses the promises of God. Not just generally promises, but the promises God has made to be our reward. Look at Genesis 15. If you turn to Genesis 15 quickly and just look at verse 1, remember the context for Genesis 15 is that uh, Abram has just delivered. He's gone and gotten all the loot back from the cities that were defeated, Sodom and Gomorrah. And the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah say, uh, keep the spoils as payment for bringing our people back. And Abram says, no, I not going to do that. You're not going to be the one that makes me rich, wealthy, right? Uh, You're not going to be the one that provides for my security. Look at what God says immediately after this in Genesis 15, 1. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram. I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. God has been promising rewards to His people since the very beginning. Sometimes in Scripture it's referred to as our inheritance. This is what's held out to us. Eternal life in perfect fellowship together with God in Jesus Christ. That is our hope. That is all of our inheritance. Christ and all of the blessings that are ours in Him. Look at Hebrews 11. In Hebrews 11, we read about Moses, and I'm going to begin over in verse 24. Hebrews 11:24. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. By faith he left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. That is the reward, Jesus Christ. Daniel possesses the promises of God that God is our reward, and all that we need, all that we require is given to us by God. And so how then do we face the world? How do we live in the world? Several things, and we'll close with this this evening. We do not look to the world for life, but to God. We look to God for our life, not to the world. 
We do not cater to the world, meeting its demands in order to get what we want from it. And listen, I'm going to say that again, and I want to encourage you to meditate on this this evening, because all of us are constantly, constantly under the pressure from the world to cater to the world, to meet its demands in order to get what we think we need or what we want. We do not cater to the world, meeting its demands in order to get what we want from it. I pick on this all the time. It's the low-hanging fruit. The world demands that you be anywhere else on the Sabbath but in church. And heaven forbid you've got kids who are sports age. They will demand that you take your kids on the road for months at a time in travel league. The world will say to you, if you don't do this with your kids, what future do they have? How will they live? What about all their potential? You're robbing them of the opportunity. Do you hear the empty, pointless, false promises of the world that are held out in that? They're they're counting on us as parents to love our children so much and believe their lies that we will do what we think is best for them when God has said that what is best is to be here on the Sabbath day, to be gathered together here. And I have counseled parents who are in despair because their children have walked away from the church as soon as they're old enough to leave home. But I know those parents too have been the very parents that would be out of church for months at a time for their kids' sports. We're teaching our children by the way we spend our Sabbath days. It's one example. And listen, if that's not the example that applies to you, you're not married, you don't have kids, you're still a kid yourself, trust me. Every day in the world, the world is holding out promises to you if you will only compromise what God has told you to do. And the compromise, just as it did in the garden with Eve, leads to death, not life. The promises the world makes, it cannot keep Do not believe their promises, and do not fear their threats. We belong to God, and God will provide. We obey God rather than men. This is how we face the world. We speak the truth in the face of danger, embarrassment, or shame. We remember the works of God in the past. Notice how Daniel spends more time in his answer to the king, telling the king something that the king knew and that we know. The whole narrative of Nebuchadnezzar's humility. It's it's a few short verses at the end where he says, okay, now this is what the writing means. You're done. The kingdom is finished. We remember the works of God in the past and we trust the words of Christ. And I think that's probably one of the clearest moments we find in the text this evening with respect to Christ. It, It is from a a biblical theological perspective, when we read all of Scripture together, Christ is actually present in this narrative this evening. It's the hand of Christ that writes on the wall. It is the Spirit of God, the Spirit of Christ, in the words of the prophets that calls out to the world that judgment is coming, but salvation has been provided. What's written on the wall but the pronunciation of judgment against Belshazzar whose hand is it that writes, 
but the hand of Christ. And he speaks to us, brothers and sisters. He holds out promises to us. Do not believe the threats of the world and do not believe their promises, but trust in Christ and him alone. Let's pray.